Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, April 18th, 2021, and this is show number 832. Well, Steve and I are super happy that Apple has decided to have the next event on our birthday, April 20th at 10 a.m. Pacific time. I think it was really considerate of them, even though this announcement and whatever they do at WWDC are likely to cost the PodFeed podcast a great deal of money. You see, Steve's 13-inch MacBook Pro is not quite up to snuff for running the live show when we're on the road, and maybe we'll get to go on the road this year. And his 27-inch iMac is nearly pushed to its limit for the live show as well. If they come out with an M1 for either or both of those, oh, we're going to have to do it. And then, you know, I'm not going to be able to stand it for Steve to have an M1 laptop and not me. So if the 16-inch gets updated, we're positively doomed. And also, you know, my 12.9-inch iPad Pro is coming up on three years old. There's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly fine. But I want a new one. And then if they throw in a new Apple TV and AirPods Pro, I'm going to have to sell a kidney, I think. And I might as well throw some AirTags in my shopping bag while I'm at it, right? Oh, it's going to get ugly this year. Well, in any case, if you're planning on watching the event, please join Steve and me in our live chat room at podfeet.com slash chat. It's really great fun to watch together this way. And don't worry, Steve and I don't do any video or audio. We just text chat like everybody else. So you're not listening to us blather on and you're missing things. If you've never joined the live show, and this is really a great way to get your toes wet, meeting fellow Nocilla castaways. Now, Steve says you don't have to bring us birthday presents, but you know what? He doesn't speak for me. I remember one time we went out to dinner for our birthday and the waitress asked if we were celebrating anything. And I explained it was both of our birthdays, but that Steve most definitely did not want his birthday celebrated. He didn't want any attention, but I did. She came back with this little tiny cake and it had a sign on it with two arrows, one saying her birthday and one pointing in the other direction that said not his birthday. Best time ever. Anyway, I really hope to see all of you in the chat room for the spring loaded event from Apple on Tuesday. In Chit Chat Across the Pond this week, we have another episode of Programming by Stealth. We continue on our journey to learn how to use Git to do version control still as a single person, but this time with multiple devices. As Bart says during this episode, who's learning to program here that doesn't have multiple computers? We've learned how to push our changes to a single separate repo, but we had to always say what branch we wanted to push to what branch was on the origin. In this installment, we learn how to tell Git to track our branches so that they stay in sync without us having to tell Git every time which branches to push where. We also learn how to make sure our annotated tags get pushed as well by setting a single repo or all Git repos on our computers to push our tags. Bart leaves us with a big tease at the end. We learn how to clone a repo in preparation for having two computers accessing the code at the same time in Git with a primary source acting as the go-between for them, only we don't actually get to do it. We make the clone and then he stops because that's going to be part two, which will be in two weeks. You can find this episode either under Chit Chat Across the Pond or Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice. About nine months ago, I bought a Synology Disk Station, which is a network-attached storage device, also known as a NAS. I bought the DS1019+, Plus, which is a 5-bay unit, and I populated it with five 4-terabyte Western Digital Drives. Now, 20 terabytes sounds like a massive amount of storage, but you don't actually get nearly that much actual storage. One of the main purposes of having a NAS is to have data protection. It's not really a backup per se, but a disk can go bad in your array and all of your data can still be safe. 
This is done with a technology called RAID, which stands for Redundant Array of Inexpensive Disks. Now, the word inexpensive is in the name, not because the drives are that inexpensive, but because you don't have to buy one giant expensive drive, like 20 terabytes, but instead you buy lots of smaller drives and you create one giant volume in your array. Now, in order to be able to have a disk go bad and still have all of your data, by definition, my 20 terabytes of purchased disks could never give me more than 16 terabytes. In order to keep track of where the data is on the five drives and keep it striped across them to provide the fault tolerance we just talked about, you need some space dedicated to run those calculations, and that space is called parity. Now, Synology provides a RAID storage calculator, a lot of companies do, so you can virtually build your array with the drives you could afford and then see how much usable storage you'll effectively get. It's actually pretty fun to play with, but it's also rather depressing. It demonstrates the storage with either RAID 5 or with their own Synology Hybrid RAID, also called SHR. I have to admit right here that I went with SHR because Stephen Getz told me to. Anyway, the bottom line is that with my 20 terabytes of purchased drives, I get just 14.54 terabytes of usable space of that 20 terabytes worth of raw disk. The problem to be solved today is figuring out how I used up nearly all of that storage in only nine months. And I want to figure out how to gain some breathing room without selling that kidney because, you know, I need that kidney for the next Apple event. All right, so let's talk about what we're using the Synology for. We have several categories of data. First, we have financial and medical data that we do not want stored on any of our computers, and we definitely don't want them in the cloud. We have Steve's video files, both his completed videos, but all of the raw source data that goes into making his videos. We have my audio files from the podcast, both the published MP3s and all of the raw audio input. We have our ripped DVD collection, which allows the Synology to act as a Plex server so we can watch videos from other places coming into our home server. We also have a, a folder for scanned photos from our physical photo albums. Since the initial installation was only nine months ago, we have used 81% of the available space, which sends the Synology into high alert status. Once it gets past 80%, man, it's just, it's like danger, Will Robinson. It gets all annoyed at you. So it was time to look at the storage we're using and see what we can throw away. For example, do I really need Bart's original stereo recording of every chit-chat across the pond and my original stereo recording of the same episode of chit-chat across the pond and the Hindenburg version, which contains the same stereo data yet again, and the M4A, which includes the same data, and the MP3, which is easily available on the internet. So that's like uh, five copies, I think, by the time we're done, four of which, well, three of which are uncompressed. So you could pretty much see where I'm going here that we probably don't need all of that data. Now, whenever I start down the path of trying to remove data from a drive, I make sure to start with the biggest types of files. Have you ever done this? You spend like three weeks throwing away text files and you gain like a few hundred megabytes? Get rid of a few photos and you might clean out a gigabyte in the same level of effort. Call your videos and you're talking hundreds of gigabytes that you're going to be able to harvest with the same level of effort. Now, the next step after starting down the spring cleaning path is to think, can I just throw money at this problem instead because this is really boring? Anyway, you need to make a trade-off to decide whether to spend money or time. So the first thing I considered was just replacing some of the four terabyte drives with eight terabyte drives. 
As depressing as it was to fill the Synology up with drives in the first place, and to be only, only able to use 70% of what I paid for, it was even more depressing to look at replacing drives. Using Synology's RAID calculator again, I simulated one by one replacing one 4TB drive at a time with an 8TB drive. I recorded how much space I would gain for each drive added and how much it would cost me at around $200 for each 8TB drive I added. I put the chart in the show notes, but here's the progression of replacing 4TB drives with 8TB. The first drive replacement gains you absolutely nothing because you need two of a given size drive in order for one to be able to go bad and all of the data still be protected. But from there on up, swapping in, in an 8TB for a 4TB gains you 4 terabytes. It's quite depressing, though, to spend $400 on two drives and gain only 4 terabytes. Now, after running this analysis, I decided it didn't seem like smart money spent, so it was time to go back to deleting data. Now, even though I suspected Steve's video files were taking up most of the storage, I didn't think it would be prudent to point fingers his way until I'd done some work culling my own data. My share folder on the Synology is using 2.9 terabytes of the 11 terabytes we're currently using, so it's a sizable chunk. Now, it turns out 1.2 terabytes of that is my last good bootable backup of my Mac before my last new can pave, and I'm not getting rid of that one. But that leaves us with 1.7 ter terabytes of my data that I could clean up. I started going through every folder of chitchat uh, audio and getting rid of the uncompressed recordings I mentioned earlier. Now remember that for many of the shows, I have as many as three copies of that uncompressed audio. I deleted all of the duplicates for an entire year, and it didn't gain enough space to register to the first significant digit. Well, it's time to target Steve's video folder. Of the 11 terabytes we're currently using, the videos take up over 7 terabytes. Just like in macOS, on the Synology, it's very difficult to see the sizes of the enclosed folders. I started by right-clicking on each of the top-level folders, pulling down to properties, waiting for it to populate with the size, and then recording the number in a spreadsheet. This was going to get old real fast. A bit of searching on the internets found a nifty app for Synology called Storage Analyzer. With this app, you can point it at a set of folders on the Synology, and it will create a lovely report on the size of the folders and subfolders, and it'll look for duplicates and much more. You can ask it to run this task on a regular basis so you can keep an eye on things, or you can run it manually. Now, I don't want to meet, do a commercial for Synology, but the vast number of quality apps available is one of the reasons I chose Synology. I love how Storage Analyzer works, and I truly wish we had it on macOS, a way to always be able to see your folder sizes. When the report finishes running, you get a pie chart of the subfolders in the share you asked it to analyze. Next to that colorful pie chart, you get a list of folders showing file count and folder size. Each line in that list can be double-clicked to show the file sizes of its enclosed folders. Of the 7 terabytes of videos, Steve's Final Cut libraries take up 4.5 terabytes. Drilling down into that folder, we can see, in order by size, the folders the next level down. Now, the cool part of this was that we could see that our CES 2020 coverage, all by itself, was nearly a full terabyte. This gave us a spark of an idea. Steve may one day want to go back and remix some of the old conference videos, but he definitely doesn't need them to be on such expensive storage. He went through the folders and he quickly identified two terabytes of data he could easily pull off and put on a drive in a closet. Well, I dug in my old box of hard drives and I found a couple of four terabyte drives. 
but the stickers on them said they were nine years old. Now, I know this data isn't mission critical, but do you want to start with such an old drive? Obviously, I would need to buy him a brand new drive. And then he pointed out that he would want a backup of that drive as well. <sighs> Some people. Anyway, we started discussing whether to buy external disks in enclosures or bare drives using a bare toaster for copying the data, but it started to get expensive and complicated. It also seemed dumb to buy four terabyte drives when I really needed to start, to start expanding our storage options. That's when I came up with a better idea. If I buy two 8-terabyte bare drives and I put them in the Synology, that buys me only 4 terabytes. However, I can harvest those two 4-terabyte drives for Steve's cold storage of these older videos. He can move the 2 terabytes of old data onto one harvested drive and have a backup. That means my gain will actually be 6 terabytes of usable space on the Synology for the cost of the two 8-terabyte drives. It turns out that a bare 8TB drive isn't that much more than a 4TB drive in an enclosure, so this was a good deal. Now, we own a drive toaster, so Steve could copy the data from the Synology to OneDrive, and then the cop uh, copy from that OneDrive to the other, and then pack those bare drives in static-free bags in the closet. There's a risk, though, with that idea, because drives need to be spun up from time to time to reduce the chance of bit rot. Technically, it would work, but it was a little bit risky. Now, I like this idea a lot, and then I figured out how to spend just a little bit more money and make it more elegant and give us more options. They sell two-bay disk enclosures with built-in hardware RAID. With one of these, I could set it up as RAID 1, which means the disks would be mirrors of each other, which is exactly what Steve wants. Now, I know it's not completely like a backup, but it's pretty close. And again, this is data that we probably will never use. We just don't want to throw it away. I started by looking at super cheap non-name brands for these uh, RAID enclosures, but in the end, I went with the OWC Mercury Elite Pro Dual Bay USB 3.0 RAID enclosure. It was $89 from B&H Photo. It looks like an adorable little cheese grater Mac Pro. The Synology has two USB 3.0 ports, one on the front and one on the back. So for my purposes, there was no need to get some fancier, more expensive Thunderbolt 3 version of this same enclosure. If I were buying one for some other kind of work, I would definitely go straight to OWC and buy one of the newer ones. When I plug this enclosure into the Synology, it will show as an attached shared USB drive and we'll be able to drag files directly to it. The nice thing is we'll be able to keep it up and spinning, so less chance of bit rot. It can just sit in our little cabinet right next to the uh, Synology. Now, if that doesn't work for some reason, we could always hook it up to a Mac on the network, I have a couple of those laying around, and have it manage the copy from the Synology to the RAID enclosure. Now, Mark Poley explained uh, to me that he tried it that way, and it took absolutely forever. It was much, much slower to do it over the network and going through the Mac. In fact, he said it took a really long time when he forgot and closed the lid on the laptop that was running the copy. So hopefully I'll be able to do it just directly from the Synology to the enclosure that's plugged right into it. Well, I received the two 8 terabytes for the Synology this week, while the little two-bay enclosure doesn't get here until Monday. The second step was going to be terrifying. I'm so glad Stephen Getz is my spirit guide to point me to the technical articles that explain how to do things and provide some advice along the way. I was going to yank out a drive from my Synology, put in the new 8TB drive, and then wait while the Synology rebuilt the entire RAID system to incorporate that new drive. When it was complete, I'd have to do it again with the second drive. 
I asked Stephen how to start, and he asked me when the last time I ran data scrubbing on my Synology was. Uh, data scrubbing? What's that? Stephen explained that data scrubbing on Synology is designed to fix bit rot. Evidently, you're supposed to somehow know to turn this feature on and run it on a schedule. It doesn't seem right to me that I only found out about it because Stephen Getz read the vast documentation and happened to tell me about it. If I'm supposed to run something on a schedule, I think it would be preferable if Synology had pinged me maybe after a couple of months of ownership and said, hey, did you know we have this cool feature called data scrubbing you might want to enable? Well, anyway, data scrubbing takes a long time, especially with a lot of data. It took the DS1019 Plus around 14 hours to complete on 11 terabytes of data. When that was complete, I had to face the music. It was time to take that terrifying step of pulling of one of the drives from my Synology. Now, Stephen told me I could just yank one of the drives to replace it with the Synology still running, but I followed Synology's instructions instead, which said to do a graceful shutdown first, replace the drive, and then boot it back up. As soon as it booted back up, the Synology started beeping constantly. Luckily, I found a spot in the control panel where I could turn that darn beep off. I understood the Synology was just warning me that I was in a degraded state, but I sure didn't want to listen to it all day. I verified in the Storage Manager app that it was churning away, rebuilding the array, and then started to obsessively watch the progress by percentage. It's very cool that the Synology is still available to pull data from and write to during this process, but I decided not to bother it while it was working so hard. It took from 11.19 a.m. until 8.34 p.m. to repair the array, which if my cipher is correct would be 9 hours and 15 minutes. It was a pretty exciting moment when it was done, even though the Synology storage manager showed I still only had 14.54 terabytes of storage in my storage pool. My excitement was also tempered with trepidation because I still had to go through the same terror to add the second 8 terabyte drive. I powered down and replaced the second 4 terabyte drive with the 8 terabyte drive, and I let that repair run overnight. And when I awoke, my storage pool had grown from 14.54 terabytes to 18.18 terabytes. Now, some of you have probably noted that the gain wasn't the 4 terabytes we hoped for. It was only 3.64 terabytes. There's an explanation for this, but it requires a smidge of math. When drive manufacturers spec drives, they use the decimal definition of 1 terabyte as 1,000 to the 4th bytes. But when file systems report disk space, they use the binary definition of 1 terabyte is equal to 1024 to the 4th. If we have 4 terabytes of space defined in decimals, then the math is 4 terabytes times 1000 to the 4th power divided by 1024 to the 4th power, which is 3.64 terabytes. Even though I understand the math, it still makes me feel like I've been cheated when I see that. The little OWC two-bay RAID enclosure won't be here till Monday, like I said, so I haven't begun the process of offloading Steve's data just yet. I'll definitely let you know if I learn anything interesting in that setup. But at least for now, the Synology has stopped hollering at us that we're out of space. But there is another device constantly sending alarming notification that it's out of space, and that's the Drobo 5N2 that backs up the Synology. I simply can't convince myself to spend $400 to put into an older device that's just a backup of data that's already protected with fault-tolerant RAID. You do hear horror stories of people having NAS failures, not being able to get their data back, so I, I do leave, lose a bit of sleep over that. 
The good news is that when we move the two terabytes of Steve's video data off of the Synology, we can also remove it from the Drobo, so maybe at least that'll keep it quiet for a while. I'm sure I'm going to have to deal with it at some point, but I'm just going to kick that can down the road. Now, at least 20% of you are wondering about what's your off-site storage plan? Well, I simply don't have one. I've looked at the cold storage options with their monthly fees, like Wasabi at 0.6 cents per gigabyte per month, Backblaze's B2 at 0.5 cents per gigabyte per month, and Amazon Glacier at 0.4 gigabytes per month. Sorry, 0.4 cents per gigabyte per month. Amazon Glacier is the least expensive, but to back up 11 terabytes, that would cost me $44 per month. I'm definitely not going to pay over $500 per year to back up this data. Now, the truly mission-critical data is the financial and medical data, which is only around 10 gigabytes, but I'm extremely nervous about putting that data online. I've thought about making an encrypted disk image and putting that disk image in Dropbox, and that would certainly work, but a real backup is automated, and I haven't figured out how to do that just yet. If you have any ideas, I'm open to suggestion. The bottom line is that I learned a lot about how the Synology works because of this exercise, and I think I came up with a clever solution that didn't break the, the bank. It wasn't cheap, and it's still very disappointing how little space I gained in the end. I think if I had it to do over again, I would still buy a five-day Synology, but I would start by putting in three of the biggest drives I could possibly afford. When I started running out of storage, maybe by then the drives would have gotten less expensive, and I could put in a pair of even bigger drives. That might have given me more bang for my buck. Everything is fiddly. This is Bruce from Texas. I have another fiddly bit that just needs to get off my chest. So we have an Ecobee thermostat, which has its ups and downs, but for the most part does what it's supposed to do. Well, yesterday, for no apparent reason, it decided to not connect with our Wi-Fi anymore. So my wife woke me up this morning because the house was warmer than it should be and couldn't connect to the wife to the Ecobee to fix the problem. So after fiddling with it and trying to get it to connect to the Wi-Fi through my iPhone, as well as setting it up manually, no joy on either side. So I ended up using Get Human Pro and looking up the actual phone number for a real person with Ecobee. And after resetting the Ecobee, it was suggested that I power cycle my router and then plug the Ecobee back in and then set it up. This fixed the problem. It turns out that whenever AT&T, my internet provider, pushes a firmware update to the router, it kicks my Ecobee offline. Ugh. More fiddly bits. Thanks, Allison. Keep up the great work. Love your show, and I will always stay subscribed. Oh my gosh, Bruce, that is epically bad. I mean, it's pretty fiddly to unplug an Ecobee, isn't it? I installed mine myself, and as I recall, that would require unwiring it, wouldn't it? Anyway, that seems like a problem with Ecobee, not with AT&T, because they're doing the right thing by updating your router, but you having to reset the Ecobee every time AT&T changes things? That's, uh, that's crazy. That's crazy. I can't imagine. That would really drive me nuts. Well, thanks for uh, telling us about that. And if you ever figure out how to make it stop doing that, we'd sure love to hear about it. 
In macOS Big Sur just lately, there's a problem that has been plaguing most of my nerd friends, and it's the Mac App Store failing to download updates. It starts with a notification that there are updates. You click on the notification to launch the Mac App Store. At this point, you can, of course, choose to update all or just update one at a time. Whether the updates are done all in one fell swoop or individually, one or more apps will return the error, unable to download app, with a suggestion to just try later. This happens on my 2020 M1 Mac Mini. It happens on my 2019 16-inch MacBook Pro. It happens on my 2016 15-inch MacBook Pro. It happens all the time. I rarely get a set of updates that all go through properly. I've asked in our Slack community, and many people wrote back that they see this often as well, so I knew it wasn't me. Now, I hadn't played with the Mac Mini in a while, but I decided to work from it for a bit this week. There were 22 updates to run, so I thought I might as well spin the dial and update all just for the comedy. One password wouldn't download. Marzetta wouldn't download. Even Apple's motion and compressor apps wouldn't download. It was ridiculous. Well, because it's always a productive thing to do, I wrote an angry tweet about this, and I addressed it to at Apple. Tom Schmidt and Wayne Dixon both saw it and say sometimes deleting the app and re-downloading this it helps because it happens to them. Tom Hamby sees it on his iMac. Timothy, G G I'm going to pronounce this right. Timothy Gajenvik says he's been seeing it intermittently for months. Gadget Coma says he sees it on both his M1 Mac Mini and his iMac. Sandy Fr Foster is also frustrated with this. Storm Gorelli was delighted to find out it's not just his Macs. Jeff Gamut wants to start a betting pool each time on which app won't download. Wayne Dixon thought it was an issue with signing. In other words, it's a pretty well-known problem if I can find that many people on a quick tweet. Well, Apple tweeted back to me, but it was a ruse. They tricked me into making an AppleCare phone call appointment. They had kind of a slick way of doing it. They sent me a URL in an open tweet, which had me log in with my Apple ID, and then the link took me to a direct message within Twitter. I'd never seen that done before. We were able to communicate freely with things like my serial number and phone number on which I'd like to be called. When Jonathan from Apple called me, I was worried that he would make me go through the steps in Apple's support article entitled, If You Can't Download or Update Apps on Your Mac. I asked him before we did any diagnostics, could he just please check to verify this is a known issue and just make another check mark next to it that another person called it in? I knew it would be, and I didn't want to spend all that time fooling around with testing just my Mac. Now, here's the curious thing and the thing that prompted me to write this up. Jonathan did some research and said, he didn't find it as a known issue. He did, however, find it as a known issue on iOS. I bet I'm not even remembering that this also happens on my iPhone and iPad. So if all these friends of mine are having this exact same problem, it would seem that there must be a remarkably large set of people I don't know who are also experiencing this. So I started wondering, maybe I'm the only person who ever calls AppleCare? I gave this question further thought, and now I'm wondering whether things are just so fiddly these days. We just accept this kind of nonsense because we're tired. Now, my Apple Care experience was as good as it could have been, but it took one hour and 20 minutes of my day. Who has time for that? Nobody but me, evidently. Jonathan was great, and he only focused on capturing the problem in real time. I had five apps that refused to download the day before, so he had me record my screen on my MacBook Pro as I tried to download them again. You know what happened, of course. Every app downloaded just fine. Now, he, he still believed me, but the worst news was it took forever. 
At one point when either, it was either Apple's motion or compressor was downloading, at first it was coming in at 80 megabits per, se per second, which is fantastic, but then it slowed down to 48 kilobits per second toward the end. It was, as my mother would say, like watching grass grow. It took 11 minutes for the five apps to download successfully. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, that was on the M1 Mac Mini, not on my MacBook Pro, but it took 11 minutes for us to watch it work. And since I had a captive audience, I took the opportunity to tell Jonathan all about my podcast. I started by asking him if he likes podcasts, and he said he doesn't listen to them. But, you know, is that going to stop me? <laughs> of course not. I suggested he must not have a commute. I was right, he doesn't. Then I said, I listen to podcasts while I work out. He said that when he used to work out, he used to listen to podcasts too. <laughs> this poor guy. I mean, we're just watching grass grow here. I got this captive audience. He was in for it now. I was not only going to market my shows to him, he was in for what I like to think of as Allison's amazing tips for how to get into working out. Luckily for Jonathan, the test eventually finished. He pointed out that I said the failure happens on all of my Macs, so he said, can we just try another one? I had my 2019 MacBook Pro right there and more inspirational stories about working out at the ready for Jonathan, so I told him I was game. The good news is that the Mac App Store did fail on one app on the MacBook Pro, so we caught it in the act in video, and he had me take a screenshot of it as well. When we were done, he had me run what they call a cystdiagnose, which ran long enough that Jonathan got to learn my mantra that you will only truly start working out regularly when you can honestly say the words, I want to work out, not I have to work out. Well, Jonathan and I have an appointment for next week to chat about the findings, but I highly suspect this is going to be one of those problems that will, quote unquote, go to engineering, which is Apple speak for, you will never get a response. Maybe it'll come back with, this is a known issue which would be a wee bit frustrating since Jonathan researched that for me before we started. Uh, but maybe the data we collected will help them figure out why this is happening to everyone else, including me. The bottom line is, it appears that I'm the only person on Earth who actually calls AppleCare. But since I'm retired, I feel like it's my community service duty to do this for everyone else. And one more thing, before we hung up, Jonathan asked me the name of my podcast. Isn't that sweet of him? Maybe he liked that I sang the Jeopardy song to him while the cystiagnose was running. I'd like to thank John Ormsby for becoming the latest patron of the Podfeed podcast. At Patreon, you get to set the dollar limit you'd like to contribute to a per show limit or a monthly limit. I may not have mentioned this in a long time, but while I normally create eight shows per month between the NoSillaCast and Chit Chat Across the Pond, I only charge the patrons for the NoSillaCast. If you get value out of the work we do here, please consider becoming a patron like John. I do not seek to make a profit from this show, but I would dearly like it to not cost me as much money as it does. It's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Shots. Do we have any fun this week, Bart? Well, I hope so. I have th I have three palate cleansers and you have one. Uh, yeah, we're going to need some cleansing. So, yeah, it, it's a mix. Okay. It's a mix. Lots of follow-up, though. Lots of developments and long-running stories and things we've talked about recently. So we'll start with our friends in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, or we'll be very specific and say our friends in England and Wales. So okay. their history with COVID apps has been troubled. So they tried to roll their own 
Everyone said it would be a disaster. It was a disaster. They very, very grudgingly and reluctantly used Apple and Google's API, and they actually had a decent app out. But they were still cranky about it continuously and constantly because they couldn't harvest all the location data because that's against the API, because the whole point is they're trying to stop government surveillance so that people have faith in these apps and they actually achieve their goal. So they decided that they would push an update with location tracking enabled to the App Store, as if somehow that would achieve anything. So both Google and Apple went, no. So the the update has been blocked. And I just... Nice. I do not understand why anyone thought there was any point in spending even two minutes of a developer's time on this doomed project. Like, it's in black and white. It's it's the whole point of why Apple and Google made this, right? Right, exactly, exactly. Because it's so vital that people understand that there is no way this API can be used for government surveillance. It's so critical to the thing having any chance of success. So anyway, someone wasted a whole bunch of a developer's time or many developers' time, and it just makes my head explode. But then again, this is the same country where Apple are facing scrutiny because their stores are insisting people wear masks, and that's that's discriminatory to force people to wear masks in a pandemic, don't you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, so I found out about this from uh, a podcast I'd never listened to before, just found called Mac and Forth. Oh, I don't know if you've heard I of have. it, but it's three uh, British blokes, and and your friend Simon has been on the show. And uh, the, it's it's news, but with a whole bunch of funny, like not not goofy, not not totally off topic, but just they, their approach towards life is fun. Uh-huh. And uh, I heard them talking about this and they were just in hysterics that that, you know, that the British government thought they could go against what the Apple and Google API was. It was like, no, that's kind of why they wrote it, fools. So it, it takes a level of hubris that maybe you need to be. One, you know, maybe you need to once have ruled so much of the planet Earth that the sun never set on your empire to have that kind of hubris. But anyway, <laughs> all right, okay. So, well, that's good. Everything working as designed, is in other words. Yeah, exactly. Actually, yeah, that's that is definitely the spin to put on it when your head's finished exploding. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, we talked a while ago, a few months probably, that Apple did that very good A Day in the Life of Your Data white paper that was based on a story, a very real-world story of a father taking his daughter out for a walk in the park and an ice cream after school. And it sort of went through how natural it is. You know, you plan your trip on your phone and then you'd use maps. And it just goes through all the ways that your data was tracked and then how all of Apple's tools protect you. Well, Apple have updated that story to uh, to basically bring it up to date with developments since they did it a few months ago. So, you know, nice little update to a very useful, very useful thing to educate people who, you know, if you have friends or family who don't understand why this data thing is a big deal, this is a good way to illustrate the point. Human friendly. Yeah, it's very nice. Actually. I really enjoyed it. It's nicely, it's nice pictures and everything. It's just nicely done. Um, we talked a few weeks ago about the Chinese government developing something they're calling CADE, which is an API that they want uh, apps to use to, to bypass app tracking transparency. And that was fairly slimy, and we knew there were Chinese companies being pressured into using this API, and we all knew that Apple, well, Apple basically went, if you use this, we're going to throw you out of the App Store, which sort of kind of <laughs> drew a line under it, really, I think. Uh, But thanks to some reporting by the Wall Street Journal, there's an extra level of ick. We now know that one of the companies who developed the code was Procter & Gamble. So there we go. That's lovely. 
Wait, wait, wait. This is so this is a Chinese government sponsored API that was written by a US company? Okay, Procter and Gamble contributed to the development of the API. Oh. Yeah, it's like charming, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we also talked last time, I think, or maybe the time before, certainly recently, about Flock, which is Google's misguided, perhaps? That's me being judgmental. That's my opinion, not a, a state of fact. But I'm going to say Google's misguided attempt at replacing cookies with the federated... Oh, hang on. Flock. Federated some federated learning of cohorts. That was it. Uh, the Flock API, and we link to the EFF's takedown of it uh, recently enough as a uh, an interesting insights uh, piece. Um, the Verge have done a good some good reporting on it, um, and basically Google are finding themselves standing alone. Um, other browser manufacturers are not following suit. Not even people who are using Chromium as the basis for their browser. It's it, it, Google are alone on this, and it, it's looking like it's going to stay that way, which is, in my opinion, the good thing. So, so this I, I was asking about this in our Slack. There's a a way you have to opt out your own website from being part of this uh, this test. Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, that is not ringing a single, even vaguely close to a bell with me. Okay, because they're doing this flock trial, and mm-hmm. I believe they basically opted everybody in. Well, that's that's an interesting way to look at it, because the website, flock groups people into cohorts based on people's browsing habits. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's possible for a website to not be included in people's browsing habits, but it's not, I don't understand why that would be something you'd want to do as a website owner. What's much more interesting. Well, no, no, no. I'm saying, but it, you, no, 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 no. You don't opt in. You're, you're already opted in. Your bartb.ie is already right, but opted it's in. Not, I found but the, it's not about bartb.ie. It's about the people who browse the web who happen to visit my site. So I, I don't see why. Yes. It's the people who are yeah, opting so on the websites, in my opinion. You can choose to have your website not contribute to this. Okay. But I don't, that just seems pointless. Because? Because it's about tracking the people, not about tracking the websites. So it doesn't achieve, for me to opt out my website doesn't get me anything, and it doesn't get the users anything, because they'd have to have every website. Only if everybody did? I think, I mean, there's more likely people that just use a different browser than it is that every website in the world will opt out a flock. That just seems like Mm -hmm. attacking it from the wrong side. Um, What's more worrying is the fact that Google are trialing flock on human beings. Um, So they've, they've enabled a random sampling of their users of the Chrome browser. And it doesn't seem to be particularly clear opt in to people because. It's hard to tell who is and isn't the trial, so much so that actually the EFF have released a website for testing if your copy of Chrome is opted in or not. Am I flocked? Which is a good name. Um, so you can go to that tool. And then the other interesting development is that the good people in DuckDuckGo have created a plugin for Chrome that blocks flock. Although my answer to that is there's a fantastic plugin for Chrome that blocks flock. It's called Edge. <laughs> but that's, that's me being cynical. Um, or a Microsoft fan. Who would have thought that'd be me? But there we go. 
Uh, another yeah, there's there's other ones than it turns out there's other browsers than Chromium browsers too. One Safari. Well, yes, true. Safari isn't Safari is Chromium adjacent, I guess. Given that Chromium, well, no, it's WebKit. Yeah, but yeah, so Chromium is WebKit. It's from WebKit. I guess it's a cousin. They parted ways because they were they were both WebKit based, and then Google forked WebKit to make Chromium. So. It's, complicated yeah the the enthusiasm for everybody having the exact same browser really makes me crazy i know you don't seem to see it as a as a threat but i sure uh, do well no i want firefox to remain as a strong I, I want the firefox engine to remain strong and it is thankfully um so far now that microsoft has joined into the chromium gang yeah, but they're, Microsoft are actually giving me a lot of faith in that because Edge is not taking any of the cruft. They're only taking the Google... They're only taking the Chromium engine. They're not taking the Google junk. No, I don't think you understand. What I'm still cons- going to stay concerned about is when we have too many of the big companies using the same technology, the ones that aren't, that eventually disappears. Not through something nefarious by Microsoft, but just web developers going, well, I don't need to write for Safari. I don't need to write for Firefox. I'm just going to write for Chromium. Well, I, I don't think I mean, we're I've in danger of that it. now. I've sent you examples. Because the, the only browser allowed on iOS is Safari, which means that for now, there's no danger of that. That is, that is, uh, that is the one strength. Yeah. Yes, I agree. And I don't think Firefox is But we've already anything. seen examples. I sent you two of them where things that didn't work on, uh, don't work on Safari anymore. So that's what uh, scares me. Well, I, I see the hypothetical danger. I'm just not worried yet. And two or three years from now, I may well go, Alison, you were so right. Uh, I was being too optimistic. I would prefer you find you come back and go. Hey, remember you were worried? Told you nothing was wrong. I, that would be nice, really, for planet Earth, wouldn't it? Let's let let us let us yeah. fingers crossed and touch wood. Um, many many moons ago, um, we talked about the FBI paying someone to break into the iPhone belonging to the shooter in the San Bernardino uh, mass terrorism event. Yeah. Uh, and everyone assumed it was Celebrite because Celebrite make lots and lots of noise about their tools for breaking into phones, their gray key or gray shift and all those kind of things. And it was, I think it, it was almost to the point of everyone just assumed it was Celebrite. I'm not entirely sure how well-based that assumption ever was. And we now know it was not well-based at all because it wasn't Celebrite. Thanks to the Wall Street Journal, we now know it was an Australian company called Azimut. Hmm. And they- Interesting. So Azimuth is out there knowing it was them. Mm-hmm. Celebrate probably didn't want to point out that it wasn't mm-hmm. them because they got all kinds of press about it. Yeah. But I wonder why Azimuth didn't say, hey, it was us. Azimuth are described as extremely, was it shy? Basically, they're a security company that only sell their services to democratic governments and they do their best to be as hidden as possible. They don't like the limelight. For a celebrator, a distinctly grey hat company who don't seem to have anything near the same level of scruples, and they seem to quite like publicity, and they seem to actively court it. So they seem mm-hmm. to be very different companies. But I don't know any more about Azimuth. I'd never heard of them before, and if they have their way, I'll probably never hear about them again, because they don't seem to like being <laughs> heard about. So anyway... 
Um, another follow-up then. We talked about Facebook trying to bring out a new terms of service that would have seen more WhatsApp data shared with Facebook, and they told us all about it. The internet went, ah! And they went, okay, fine, we'll wait a few weeks. Um, well, they may be waiting a little bit longer in Germany because German data protection officials are actively trying to force Facebook to pause that change through the German justice oh, system. Oh, really? Oh, that's nice. So we shall see how they get on. And then finally, um, a little follow-up on the recent zero days in exchange that made all the headlines. Um, the FBI got themselves a court order to use the web shells that were deployed on compromised servers to log into the web shells and self-destruct them. So I'm glad you have this in here because I heard this reported exactly like this on DTNS and I was screaming into my phone, who are they asking permission of? The US court. I don't understand. The FBI can't hack American companies without court permission because they are an American law enforcement agency, so they can't break into American companies without permission. So you're saying the FBI went to uh, you know, Bob's Burgers and, and hacked into their exchange server and, and undid the back yes. door? Oh, that was not at all clear. Yes. They said hundreds of exchange servers, but they never said whose exchange servers they were. These were private companies. Yes. yes. Well, that's a, a crazy precedent. It has been done before, but it, it, again, they're doing it under the supervision of a court, getting a court order first before they act. Which, I mean, it, it's kind of a difficult one. If you know that there are American corporations with a back door that is exposing all of their data and you know that there is an active malware campaign that put that backdoor there, and your American law enforcement are you know, charged with protecting American interests, you kind of have to do something with that knowledge, right? I guess so. I just had no idea that was, uh, was a thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so as I say, they, they got permission, and then they went in. Interestingly, they didn't patch the exchange vulnerabilities, which to me seems like what I would have done if I was hacking in. They just destroyed the back door. They just destroyed the web shells. So it's, uh, it's interesting. They are now actively... So if they're, ar if they're already in, then you're, you're still screwed, but at least the door's been... <laughs> it's literally uh, locking the barn door after the horse is gone. Well, they're locking the barn door. I guess the theory is that even if you let Windows Updates update the Exchange server, if no one comes in and destroys the back door that you may or may not have noticed was put in there, then it doesn't matter that you've patched your Exchange server. So maybe the FBI just blowing up the back doors is sufficient. Yeah. I just found it okay. interesting they Very didn't do both. I sort of would have expected them to patch, you know, to destroy the web shell and patch the vulnerability to keep the door closed, you know. But anyway. Yeah, you know. It's a difficult one. Running patches on somebody's system could bring their business down. I imagine there were a lot of people in a room paid a lot more than I'll ever be paid trying to work out what the right thing to do is morally. Yeah. Yeah. Glad it wasn't me, because <laughs> I wouldn't want to have to justify that one in front of a judge. <laughs> yes, Your Honor, I decided to do this. Anyway, so moving on to some action alerts. Um, last Tuesday was Patch Tuesday. Microsoft fixed 19 critical bugs. And uh, the most headline grabby would be uh, that included a uh, Windows bug being actively exploited in the wild. So definitely patchy, patchy, patch, patch on that one. Then there is a new bug with a cool name, uh, Name Wreck. 
is what it's called. It's uh, a problem in a DNS client implementation that's used in a bunch of OSs. Uh, the most noticeable OS is FreeBSD. The other ones are proprietary OSs based off the same crypto, or sorry, the same DNS library, but they're in IoT devices. So the kind of OS that you use for an embedded device rather than for an end user desktop. So the FreeBSD is easy to deal with, and the obviously FreeBSD-based stuff like PFSense, that's easy to deal with. What's really hard to deal with is the IoT devices, and I think really the only piece of practical advice I can give is sort of if, you know, if, if it's an IoT device and it's not getting security updates, don't use it. I think that's... I think that's the only thing we can say, right? It's really, really important that your IoT stuff, you only keep it as long as it gets patches. And once it stops being supported with patches, it's it's time to move on. I, I don't really... Part of the hard part of that is that's sort of a, if if you're not here, raise your hand problem. Like, how do I, I have, I think, 43 IoT devices on my network. Yeah. I don't know whether my iDevices switch is getting updates. This is sort of where we come in. Where would I? I don't even know I'd know that. This is where we come into the whole. So we went through this period with Android. And now all of the main vendors like Samsung have a matrix of how long they support stuff. And we need to get through the Wild West phase of IoT where you can say that if you have a device from, I don't know, Netgear or something, then it will be supported for blah years. We need to get to that point. Right now, it is the yeah. absolute Wild West. And my answer is minimize, minimize, minimize as few as possible of these devices. Well, but okay. I know. Don't have, don't have an internet ac- connection either. You know, I mean, it's in that category. I don't think it's... Don't have a computer. Well, no, it's minimize, don't. not zero, right? You have... Well, why minimize? The reason to have them is to have them. They're minimize in what way? Well, you got to balance it. Yeah, what criteria? Just because it's fun is a valid thing to do for stuff that you know is getting security updates, whereas just for fun is not a valid thing to do. If it doesn't provide real benefit, then I will not take the risk. So I, I'm balancing the risks. So, so there are very, very few. It's a non-zero number. There are there are IoT devices on my network. It's not zero, but it's as close to zero. It's much closer to zero than it would be if it wasn't the Wild West. I would love to be going out and going, ooh, shiny. Sorry, dropped something there. Well, I think you're minimizing uh, people's motivation for putting IoT devices in. It's not just because of, oh, shiny. No, but no. It's because it provides value. Right, right, but that's what I'm saying. When you are evaluating the value, you have to know that it's the Wild West and that you can't easily answer the question you just asked me, how do I know this is safe? If I could answer that question, then we'd be in a much better place. But I can't. And it's not because I'm an idiot. It's because the, the, we haven't found... Maybe this new chip protocol that apparently is about to get ready to start launching devices at the end of the year, maybe that'll help. Maybe that's the end of the Wild West. We, sh- we shall see. Yeah, I thought I was checking the notes to see if you were going to talk about the chip protocol because there was news on that this week, right? Well, there's, yeah, so they're fixing to make a plan, which I didn't think rose to the level of being worthy of mentioning here, but it came up naturally. So, yeah, they're, they're now saying they should have devices on the market possibly by the end of 2021 or early 2022. 
And what is CHIP again? CHIP is, I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's a protocol that a whole bunch of the really big players, including Apple, um, Amazon, Google, it's a standard protocol for making devices that can communicate with the home assistants in a standard way. So that anyone can make a device that uses chip, and then any device that uses chip can talk to A lady, S lady, or Hello G. Okay, uh, it stands for Connected Home Over IP. That sounds like a backronym, all right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think the idea of that was to make it where you didn't have to know so much. Like, does this device talk to my Google Home, but doesn't talk to my Amazon Echo? Correct. You know, it's interoperability. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's any more secure, does it? Uh, well, it all comes down to what the certification process is to get that tick that says you are chip certified. Chip? Is it going to be a chip? Well, chip as in C-H-I-P. Is it, there's going to be a device that's uh, going to oh, have okay, on the sorry. box some sort of icon like made for iPhone, right? Like MFI, there is going to be a certification for these devices. So as it comes out, we'll be able to I'll be able to have a much more informed conversation of exactly what that icon means. Does it only mean interoperability or does it also mean that it meets a, a baseline of security? We'll know more we'll know more at the end of the year. Yeah. So the good thing is, uh, I'm going to quote Stacy Higginbotham here, who does um, uh, does Stacy on IoT. The what came out this week was that they're uh, going to have certification in late 2021, and they will include a blockchain element for device certification and security. Ooh, that so and this is one of those things where you can actually go. You know, there are legitimate uses for blockchain. People, it's not just. Uh, Buying tweets and uh, funny money. <laughs> actually, yeah, she's a yeah. useful technology. Um, I didn't. I'm uh, gonna just. I'm gonna drop a bullet in on this show notes just after perfect. that thing. Since since we brought it. Yeah, up brilliant, here. excellent. Thank you. Um, yeah. Okay. So moving on to the bit that's going to need some um, palate cleansing later. Worthy warnings. Goodness me, has it been a busy two weeks for losing data, or learning that data was lost? Maybe. So the biggest piece of news is that we discovered, because it was on sale on the dark web, that uh, Facebook lost a whole bunch of data back in 2019, but didn't feel any need to share that fact with, say, the users affected. Over, it's 533 million, so over half a billion Facebook accounts were found on sale. And these include full names, dates of birth, email addresses and phone numbers which at the very, very least opens you up to darn convincing phishing attacks, there's a real chance of SIM swapping being done against you if someone knows that much about you and is even vaguely capable of socially engineering AT&T or whatever. And I would say, not just me, Brian Krebs as well, would say that this kind of thing really does open you up to the possibility of identity theft as well, because you're starting to get enough information here that if you wedge through a little further... You could end up opening a bank account or something. It's scary, scary stuff. So if Have I Been Pwned has been updated to, to allow you to search if you're in this mess uh, by phone number or email address, which is convenient. And Brian Krebs has some sort of good descriptions of what the dangers are based on being in this data breach. So 
if you are unfortunate enough, maybe have a read of, of Brian's description of what the dangers are, because for for forewarned is forearmed, not forearmed is forewarned. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I wish I could say, and you do this thing and it'll all be grand, but it really is a case of ever-present vigilance, I'm afraid. Kind of all we can do. All right. Uh, scraped data of 500 million LinkedIn users is found being sold online. Uh, Two million records leaked as proof. This, this is this doesn't include as much information as the Facebook dump. So this is more about exposing people to um, targeted phishing attacks than anything else. And in a similar vein, the Clubhouse API is very badly secured and also allows people's data to be scraped. So again, it puts people at a targeted phishing risk. Yay. Yeah. And then finally, if you live in the US and you use apparently an extremely popular app for paying for uh, parking, Park Mobile, uh, they lost license plate data and mobile phone numbers for 20 mil- 21 million American drivers. So, yay. <laughs> right, my palate definitely needs cleansing after that. But we have a yeah. little bit more show notes before we get to there. So, notable news. Pwn to Own 2021 went ahead as a virtual event. Uh, lots and lots of money was paid to fabulous security researchers and all of the all of the things they were paid for were responsibly disclosed, making all of us more secure and frankly providing some uber nerd sport. It's to, to me, it's like the Olympics of nerds. I, I love Pwn to Own. Um, <laughs> so as a result of this wonderfully fun I don't know if you call it a conference or a sports event, whatever you call it. Um, money was paid out for important security fixes for Windows, Ubuntu Desktop, Chrome, Edge, Safari, Zoom, Teams, Exchange, and Parallels. So we have virtualization, desktop OSs, browsers, video conferencing. This is all really good stuff to have more secure. So yay to own to own. <laughs> It's, it always sounds bad, but that's what you want to see them do. Correct. Exactly. Don't go on the black market and sell this stuff to cyber criminals. Go to Pwn to Own and have some fun and win some prizes and get us all more secure. You know, speaking of, of uh, responsible disclosure, I heard also on Daily Tech News Show that Google's, you know, Google has the thing where they, they find a bug and then they notify Project somebody Zero. that they yeah. found this bug. I'm sorry, Project what? Zero. Yeah, Project Zero. And then uh, if they don't do anything with a certain number of, of days, then they, they disclose it. But they've added something like 30 days for them to do a patch or something like that. I, I forget the exact details of it, but they increased the amount of time specifically to fix it. That they were, yeah, given. there was some criticism that they were being a bit too rigid. So it's good to see that. And I think it, it's not that everyone just gets thirty days. I think it's the case that if you're if you're actually working on it, you get a bit of extra time because you're doing the right thing, which is how you, which is yeah. what you wanted. Like you, a vendor who engages proactively with the security community, I really think deserves a little bit of grace. You know, let, to let them get the stuff out. So yeah, that's good to see. Yeah, it's an extra 30 days before disclosing vulnerability details. So, oh, I know what it was, it, because it allows end users to get the patch that the... Co- so if the company has made the patch... Aha, okay. So they've responded and they made the patch, then this gives users 30 days to actually receive the patch. So it's yes. not actually giving the companies time to procrastinate any longer. Okay, no, that's actually also very sensible, because 
you know, there's processes for change management, and those are not instantaneous in large organizations. Right. So no, right. Th- that's good. Good. That's a sign of maturity there. That's a, and Project Zero has found a lot of really important stuff. So it's nice to see that project maturing. That's that's a it's a real service Google do to the planet. As critical as I can be of them, their Project Zero team are good. So I like that. <laughs> Microsoft have rolled out kid mode for their Edge browser on the Mac. It basically, it, it puts the browser into a safer mode. It's two different modes, actually, for different age ranges of kids. Uh, because the parents have control over the kids' home screen, and it suggests the kind of websites that would be good for kids, so that parents can sort of build, like, a custom home screen based on that. Sounds useful. So it's just affecting the home screen, though, right? Uh, no, no, I think it doesn't it affect where they can go. It affects what the... It should do a pretty... Sure, it does content filtering anywhere on the internet. The home screen is just a useful way to get the kids, you know, to carrot rather than stick. But I'm pretty sure okay. there's a stick too. Okay, because all I ever heard about was the home screen. I'm like, well, they're going to leave that real mm-hmm. quick, but that's good. Yeah, now have an experiment. To do. Oh yeah, it does filter out text, images, and video from searches that would be inappropriate for children. Cool. Huh. Uh, and then. I kind of like the headline, so I kept it. So it's slightly snarky headline for my more. Google copies, pastes iOS 14's clipboard access notifications for Android. This is the kind of thing I just go, excellent, superb, well done. All of these mobile operating systems should be learning from each other. And so I would have normally written it in a less snarky way, but gosh darn it, it was a good headline, so I sort of kept it. So I don't understand what it is. That notification in iOS that says an app has read the clipboard. Oh, okay. That is now coming okay. to Android. And, and in iOS, it had a very positive effect with apps suddenly not needing the clipboard anymore. Suddenly the apps didn't feel the need to check your clipboard every time you open the app. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't like that headline. I like it, you know, enables clipboard access notification just like Apple did. You know, I mean, tip of the hat to Apple for doing it first, but it doesn't. Yeah, you're right. It It really... It's just good. It's just good. Yeah, it's good news, which is why I'm, you know, I'm uh, talking around it. But I did kind of like the snarky copy-paste pun, so I was in two minds. Uh, Some excellent explainers to draw your attention to, uh, if you want to do a bit of reading. So the first one, I I read it all. It's huge. The massive long article from NPR going into... For a non-technical audience, a really, really good job of explaining the solar winds hack. Like, from what it really means, what the implications are, a lot of behind-the-scenes detail about how all of this unfolded. They had access to a lot of... They had some serious interviews with the SolarWinds new CEO. I didn't realize this. They had a brand new CEO who's basically his week one was this. <laughs> what a way to start the job. Um really well written some absolutely amazing like to write about a technical subject for a non-technical audience in a clear and understandable way is very difficult and this article makes it look easy um Hmm. I, i was very impressed also i learned a lot I now know why the legal department tend to be involved in investigations of security incidents and it doesn't make me feel any happier. <laughs> it's not about PR. It's about cloaking what they find in attorney-client privilege. If you let your techies oh. investigate, then your techies can be forced to tell that information. If you let your lawyer investigate, you're protected by client-attorney privilege. 
Oh. Yeah. <laughs> ah, that's slimy and ick. And now I like get even less that they let the legal departments do this stuff. So anyway, it's a really good article from NPR. Uh, I learned, I, I honestly learned a lot, particularly about some of the background stuff and the bigger context. And they really had access. I guess being NPR, they get access to things. They, they, they got some very good interviews. Uh, a really nice explainer over on Ars Technica about how Apple's new app tracking transparency works. If you're curious about the, the details, that's a good article over on Ars Technica. And then just in case you weren't icked out enough, um, the EFF have a very good and easy to understand explanation of a new thing the ad industry are doing. They're calling it UID2. And it's a new tracking API that the ad industry are working on sort of on the assumption that cookies are going away. And rather than tracking people based on their browser, they want to track people based on their email address. As in Ooh. every website where you they trick you into giving your email address, they can now give you a UID too and aggregate all the data. Ew. Yeah. So uh, a, a good take on this. That's way worse. Oh, absolutely, 110 times worse. And an excellent, excellent take on this I've seen, um, I think it was on uh, TMO. Basically, this is why we need sign-in with Apple, because then you're not giving your email address to random websites. Because the whole point of sign-in with Apple is it's a random email address for every website or every app. Because the idea here isn't just on the web, right? They want to track you for everything digital. You sign up to Netflix. Well, you do that with your email address. You sign into an app. You do that with your email address. You sign up to post a comment on a blog. You do that with your email address. So they want to aggregate you everywhere where they can trick you into handing over an email address. Like This is so slimy, it makes me cranky as all hell. So, yeah, sign in with Apple everywhere you can. So... I mean, I'm sorry, I'm speechless I know. on this one. Like, it was crappy before, and now it's hideous. I know. It, it, so, is it, I mean, is there going to be a way to make this not happen? Don't hand over your email address. How do you... I know. Make accounts for anything, Bart. Sign in with Apple. <laughs> I'm sorry. You No, you. that's not a practical answer. I'm it's sorry. It's not everywhere. I, I didn't make this universe. Yeah, no, but I mean, it's it's not. A, there's nothing you can do about it other than where you can sign in. You know, I I don't like the sign in with anybody thing though. I I really resist that. I understand why it's good. Um, I think I understand why it's good, but well, there have been so many cases where like sign in with Facebook, and then I, I want to know what my username and password is. I want that information. I want to be able to control that. I want to be able to change it. Having it tied to some one company, even Apple, I don't know. I don't like it. Don't like it. It's very important who you trust with federated identity. Well, I remember when sign in with Facebook came out, and I wrote to you and went, "Oh my God, how creepy is this? Can you believe anybody would fall for this?" And you said, "Well, you know, Facebook isn't actually getting your username and password, so it's not really a big deal." And you and you were not as appalled at it as I was, and. But I didn't do it. Yeah, see... Oh, it, it, we should have a, a better conversation about this sometime when, when I have time to actually put my thoughts into proper order because it's complicated, is the short version. 
Um, but I think I guess so. I think the sort of the biggest takeaway is, I mean, the only thing you can do with these kind of situations is minimize. So while you might have been tempted just to give out your email address on a random app or a random website, now that we know that this is the plan to start using email addresses as a tracking tool like this, it's probably time to to not be so generous with that piece of information and to only use it when it gives us value. Well, that's all we can do is minimize, right? No, I know, but only use it when we give it have have it value. Of course, the reason we're doing it is because it gives us value. Right, but in, I mean that's when you go do it. Right, but in the past because you want to do that thing. Right, but how much do you want to do that thing? Right, I mean that is what it boils down to. In the past, if you you were, oh, I really want to comment on that post. Well, maybe I don't actually really want to comment on that post after all. We just recalibrate is all we can do. Sorry. No, I I just don't think those are practical answers. Right, but uh, when I, the universe I, presents you with an impossible situation, you do the least bad thing you can. Okay. I would love, I'd I love just, to have a magic I, wand, I, I just, but I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know. You're, we're weighing one problem and trading it for another one, I think, when we enlist one company to manage all of our logins. Uh, you know, in the case of Apple, there's a <clears throat> reasonably high chance that Allison will continue to use Apple for a very long time. But I could see myself not using Facebook anymore and going, I'm sick of it. I'm out. I get out of it. And all of a sudden I have no access to any of my accounts. So I could see somebody going, okay, I'm sick of Apple. I don't, I don't like their policies. I'm going to go to Android. I'm going to go to windows. I'm done. I don't want that anymore. Now I don't have access to any of my accounts. I I don't. You should be able to have, okay. So the, the actual future of these things is that you have the one account will have multiple methods of authentication. So if you do something through signing with Apple, you don't only have signing with Apple, right? So I, you can use signing with Apple and a normal sign-in method with Adobe Creative Cloud, right? It's not one or the, it's not an or, it's an and. So on my so stack- Then you haven't, then you've given them your email address and you're right where you started and you've just made your life a little bit more complicated? Right, but no, 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 you, you've made your life easier. So- my Stack Overflow account is tied to a couple of different authentication providers because I don't want to have all of my eggs in one basket because I care about my Stack Overflow account. Some random gaming app that that I just want to use because I think it might be fun, well, I'll just throw my sign in with Apple at it because I don't care. If it goes away, so what if it goes away? So, <laughs> well, that, Okay, so that's an interesting strategy. So stuff you really care about give them your email address and create a real account that you're doing and you're controlling and stuff you don't care about, you sign in with Apple. Well, no, I'm saying the stuff I care about, I do both. So I will have it tied to sign in with Apple and sign in with GitHub or sign in with Apple and sign in with Office 365. Right, I have, I don't, so when it comes to identity providers, I want people who don't have a conflict of interest. So to me... I pay Microsoft for my Office 365 subscription, so I'm the customer, so I'm happy to use sign in with Office 365. I pay for a pro GitHub account, which is now also Microsoft, so I'm happy to use sign in with GitHub. And I pay Apple for loads of stuff, so I'm the customer, so I'm happy to use sign in with Apple. I'm much more nervous about signing in mm-hmm. with Google because I don't currently have a relationship where I'm the customer. 
Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I didn't know that you could do both on any accounts. I had never seen that. The protocol entirely supports it. And so good services like Stack Overflow will allow you to have multiple authentication mechanisms. Like if you go into your GitHub account, you can connect it to your Google account and your Facebook account so that you can use either to sign in, which means if one goes away, you haven't lost access. Hmm. So it varies a lot, right? Because a random game isn't going to give you multiple sign-in options. But again, do you care? So there's no one solution fits all because really how much time you put into something depends on how much you care about it. Anyway, that was that was yeah. completely not where I yeah. thought we'd go with this conversation, but it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, speaking of interesting, I don't know. Sorry, terrible segue, but uh, <laughs> interesting insights. Um, I don't often use my pin icon. I added it to my table of contents at the bottom because there are times when I think, "Ooh, stick a pin in that." So I was reading a an analysis of a recent court case which didn't really do anything spectacular. So this is a case that went to the US Supreme Court about whether or not at real Donald Trump had the right to block people because is that a First Amendment issue? Is the president, as the head of the government, allowed to... Is that a free speech issue for at real Donald Trump to block someone? And the court decided that since at real Donald Trump had been removed from Twitter, they didn't have to decide. They simply said, yeah, this is moot. We don't have to make a judgment. And they stepped aside, which it is kind of funny. But one of the justices felt in writing their opinion that uh, they should go a little further and Justice Clarence Thomas basically outlined in his um, in, in his judgment that he believes, and he outlined his argument, that large social media companies should be regulated like common carriers. So while yeah. this case, the Supreme Court decided to effectively do nothing and set no precedent, there are going to be future cases. And right. this is... But that, that's one Chief Justice's opinion. Right. Doesn't make a... Does it make a law change? It does not. But when more, when five of them agree, then stuff happens. So right now we don't right. know what the other eight think because they just they just dodge the question. But they're not going to dodge it. Right. Next. But he just he just sort of threw that out there. Like I feel like saying yep. this, which is like so. That in itself says something. He felt it was worthy. He basically the impression I get is that he wishes the court hadn't sidestepped this, but they did. But it's not going to stay that's, sidestepped. That's a whole different subject. Mm, no. Whether they're common carriers versus uh, whether it's uh, free speech that the president can block anybody. Those are two very different topics. Mm, I would suggest having a read of the article because there actually is a relationship between the two. Uh, because normally speaking, the First Amendment wouldn't apply to situations like this. But if you if you bring a common carrier, if you basically accept the fact that these platforms have immense power, then that changes things. And he lays out the argument much better than I am. Um, hmm. I found myself reading it going, gosh, darn it, I agree with you. And I don't normally do that with Justice Thomas. But uh, Well, clearly I know more than a Chief Justice about this kind of thing, Bart. <laughs> well, I expected that too. I expected to read a bunch of ill-informed gibberish. 
That's not what I read. Oh, they're not. No, they're, I'm being completely facetious. They are not ill-informed. They are they are well-informed and well- They are on the Supported law. by staffs of smart people. They are on the law. So- but they're not always well informed on nope. in technology. Mind you, they're not Congress. I, maybe I'm being unfair. Yeah, that's exactly. I think that's exactly what people do. People say, oh, they're just like Congress. These people have... I, I watched um, Chief Justice Sotomayor talking to some somebody who was interviewing her, and they were talking about whether or not they should be on uh, televised uh-huh. sessions. And she walked through the process that they go through to when they're making decisions. And she said, there's no way you could ever follow what we're talking about because we have spent hours and hours and hours of having presentations to us by subject matter experts teaching us, letting us understand and and being able to develop these things. So we would be talking so far over your head, you would never be able to follow us. And then, of course, she also said, how do you act when you're in front of the camera? And she mugged for the camera. She said, we don't want to do that. That's a really good point, actually. So, yeah, it was. It, it really made you sit back and think. This is not Congress. This is people who, yeah, know stuff and 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 have people they listen to that, you know. I mean, there's a reason they only issue like a small handful of judgments, you know, every June or July, usually, right? That they, they, they it's not like they're doing fifty rulings a week. These these guys, they, you yeah. know, these people. I, I don't mean guys in a gendered way, thankfully. Yeah, these folks. These folks. I'm, I'm delighted that I don't mean in a gendered way these days. It's a really positive development. Um, th- th- uh, yeah, an awful, awful, awful lot of thought goes into every single case, which is why there's so few rulings. And, you know, given how important those rulings are, thank goodness. So those rulings matter. Anyway, uh, that then brings us on to some palate cleansing. Uh, I One from you and three from me. Do you want to go first or do I go first? Yay, I'll go okay. first. So um, as we've been studying learning JavaScript in, uh, in uh, Programming by Stealth, I was delighted to find an interactive map of the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe. This thing is so cool. <clears throat> it's, it's all done in JavaScript, but it's, it's got vertical lines for each of the names of the movies. And then uh, it's got these these horizontal lines that change thickness that are represent each one of the characters in all of the different movies. So if the if the line is real thin as it passes through a movie, that means they didn't get much airtime. If it's really thick, then they were a big uh, contributor to that particular movie. But you can click on a specific character, like you can click on Ant Man, and you can see in a, in a chronological order of you know when the movies uh, supposedly took place. Uh, in the universe, you can see the progression of that character through that movie. So if you want to see everything Ant-Man's in, <clears throat> you can use this tool to find it. It's really fun to play with Ooh, and, and uh, just a real delight. Sorry. And, and quite an amazing feat in JavaScript, I think. It's beautiful. It's, yeah, it's, it's wow. Steve and, I, uh, Steve and I and our buddy Ron have been um, uh, using Plex with a tool called within Plex called Watch Together. Yes. Where we gave him permission to join to watch movies with us. And we watch them together and they're perfectly in sync. So we put them up on an iPad. Uh, he used to come over every Friday night and we started putting them up on an iPad so we can talk to him directly. We can both pause and play again nice. and watch these movies. And so we've been deciding which movie to watch using this tool. Cool. Ooh. No, the, Very fun. I, I, this is really... I, 
this is one of those cases. It's fun to play it, with, it, isn't it? It's is <laughs> fascinating to play with, actually. I'm just clicking around all my favorite characters. That's, that's very <laughs> cool. Yes. No, that, that is such a, that, that is a great palate cleanser. I am well cleansed. Um, mine are a bit nerdier, um, although less active. <laughs> Wait, I, I did a JavaScript uh, uh, to, uh, tool on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and you're going to go nerdier. Nice. Different nerdy, maybe. Maybe different nerdy is a better way to say it. Um, okay. So the first one, so there's been a whole bunch of excitement, I think, in the physics world, because everyone's been really frustrated that the standard model of the atom keeps on being proved right. Which sounds bizarre to a non-scientist, but we kind of like it when experiments throw up a giant big who? Because that's... What is it they say? The best thing you can hear is, well, that's interesting. Yeah, exactly. The most important science, the most important words in science are not Eureka, but huh, that's odd. Yeah. <laughs> and the, 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 the standard model has been doggedly refusing to be odd, which is making a lot of physicists very cranky. Well, like we're, we're now seeing the edges of oddity. Um, observations both at CERN and in um, oh, the American Collider, whose name has just eluded me, Linear, I think it is, um, have started to find muons not quite doing what they're supposed to. Now, the observations haven't yet reached the, um, was it Six Sigma that's considered to be like, you know, gold standard, this is definitely true. But they're up at 4.5 Sigma, so they're this is pretty darn real stuff. And it's not easy to explain. And I did a lot of reading and it didn't really sink in. But the BBC World Service have a weekly podcast called The Science Hour. And unfortunately, they named the episode for the big story, but it's actually like a magazine show. So they cover lots of stories. So the name of the show is The Science Hour on the trail of rare blood clots. But I've linked in the show notes to the timestamp where the conversation about the muons starts. And it is the single best description of what we've discovered and how certain we are, which basically this says the evidence is really stacking up nicely. It's now two different experiments have found this weird behavior. So, you know, a European one and an American one. So that's very unlikely to be bad data or a dodgy wire, like when the Italians thought they found particles moving faster than the speed of light and it was just a dodgy connection. <laughs> this seems to be real. So it's very interesting, very well explained. And like I say, so many explanations didn't do it for me. That one did it for me. So I figured I'd link it. I'm going to add another one, if you don't sure. mind. Um, Physics Girl is this wonderful woman on uh, on Twitter that does and YouTube that does these great videos explaining physics things. And she made a video of herself trying to explain to her production staff what had happened. Aha! And it's fantastic because they don't know any physics, they're right? Production. They're just they're just people holding cameras and you know doing audio recordings and setting up lighting, and so it's very very informal. And she starts laughing as she's going like, "Okay, so you understand what mu muons are, right?" And they're like, "No, nope. nope. <laughs> back up." <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Now what do I got to do? Okay, let me start over here. And it, it's it's very lighthearted, but it gives you. I really understood what she was saying, so I thought it was really fun. Ooh, excellent. Do please pop that in the show notes. That sounds good. I will. Uh, the next one I have is 100% because of you. I wouldn't even have listened to it if it hadn't been for the Nasilicast giving me an interest in accessibility. Uh, but there's a podcast called Codish that someone in the Nasilicast chat put me on to, I'm almost certain. Uh, over, sorry, the Nasilicast Slack. Uh, but anyway, it's a very nerdy podcast by a company called Heroku that do database cool stuff. Uh, but they tend to have actual developers talking to other actual developers about actual developer stuff. 
uh, and I'm going through the back catalogue at the moment, and utterly caught my eye was uh, Codish episode 16, which was uh, Accessibility in Web Standards. And it's an interview Ooh. with a lady called Leonie Watson, who has spent the last... Oh, yeah. Ah, excellent. Well, you, you, the fact that her name rings a bell to you was great. 29-year veteran of this whole thing. Fascinating story about the development of the Web Accessibility Guidelines, WCAG. It's, it's a really good discussion. So I thought you would love this. Oh, yeah. She's, yeah, she's wonderful. I follow her on Twitter. She does really good presentations. She's fascinating. Well, she did a great conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I thought you'd love it. So there you go. That's one that you in particular will love. Yeah. And the last one was just too funny not to, not to throw in here. Um, Joanna Stern has been one of my favorite Apple beat reporters for ages. She's just good at all tech reporting, but her apples, you know, she's good on the Apple beat, and now she's with the Wall Street Journal, which is no bad place to be. You know, they, they recognize talent when they see it. But she weighed in on the whole Apple versus Facebook thing, uh, sort of in general, but also very much with a focus on app tracking transparency. Uh, and she decided to build around a video of Rock'em Suck'em Robots, where they got custom heads made for Tim Cook and... Um, Ah, why can't I think of the head of Facebook's name now? I hate when my brain does that. Mark Zuckerberg. Thank you. So they got Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Tim Cook heads for Rock'em Suck'em Robots and used that as the basis for the conversation. Nice. Oh, and this isn't behind the paywall either. Yeah, which is so unusual. As soon as I yeah. saw Wall Street Journal, I was like, oh, well, can't watch that. That's what I thought too until I went and watched it. I was like, ooh, this is fun. So there we go. Well, that was a lot of palate cleansing. I don't remember what I was worried about. So that's that's where we should start. Mission accomplished. Right? <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, even though we've pan- we've cleansed our palate, I am still going to remind you all folks that it's very important that you stay patched so you stay secure. Well, you know what that means. That means we're going to wind things up for this week. Don't forget to show up to the live show, uh, not to the live show, to the live chat for during the uh, Apple event next week. Again, it's Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time and join us at podfeet.com slash chat. But also don't forget to send in your dumb questions, your everything is fiddly recordings like Bruce. You can send in comments and suggestions. You can do all of this by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a patron like uh, like John did? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. If you'd rather do a one-time donation, podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join the conversation? You could join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack. And here's a little hint, Bart hangs out there too. You could join our Facebook community where Bart does not hang out at podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.